Chapter 9 of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 9 Developments. Mr. Grice called about nine o'clock the next morning. Well, said he, what about the visitor who came to see me last night? Like and unlike, I answered. Nothing could induce me to say he is the man we want, and yet I would not dare to swear he was not. You are in doubt, then, concerning him? I am. Mr. Grice bowed, reminded me of the inquest, and left. Nothing was said about the hat. At ten o'clock I prepared to go to the place designated by him. I had never attended an inquest in my life, and felt a little flurried in consequence. But by the time I had tied the strings of my bonnet, the despised bonnet, which, by the way, I did not return to Moore's, I had conquered this weakness and acquired a demeanor more in keeping with my very important position as chief witness in a serious police investigation. I had sent for a carriage to take me, and I rode away from my house amid the shouts of some half-dozen boys collected on the curbstone. But I did not allow myself to feel dashed by this publicity. On the contrary, I held my head as erect as nature intended, and my back kept the line my good health warrants. The path of duty has its thorny passages, but it is, for strong minds like mine, to ignore them. Promptly at ten o'clock I entered the room reserved for the inquest, and was ushered to the seat appointed me. Though never a self-conscious woman, I could not but be aware of the many eyes that followed me, and endeavored so to demean myself that there should be no question as to my respectable standing in the community. This I considered due to the memory of my father, who was very much in my thoughts that day. The coroner was already in his seat when I entered, and though I did not perceive the good face of Mr. Grice anywhere in the vicinity, I had no doubt he was within earshot. Of the other people I took small note, save of the honest scrubwoman, whose red face and anxious eyes under a preposterous bonnet, which did not come from La Mole's, I caught vague glimpses as the crowd between us surged to and fro. None of the Van Burnhams were visible, but this did not necessarily mean that they were absent. Indeed, I was very sure from certain indications that more than one member of the family could be seen in the small room connecting with the large one in which we witnesses sat with the jury. The policeman, Carroll, was the first man to talk. He told of my stopping him on his beat and of his entrance into Mr. Van Burnham's house with the scrubwoman. He gave the details of his discovery of the dead woman's body on the parlor floor, and insisted that no one, here he looked very hard at me, had been allowed to touch the body till relief had come to him from headquarters. Mrs. Boppert, the scrubwoman, followed him, and if she was watched by no one else in that room, she was watched by me. Her manner before the coroner was no more satisfactory, according to my notion, than it had been in Mr. Van Burnham's parlor. 
she gave a very perceptible start when they spoke her name and looked quite scared when the bible was held out towards her but she took the oath notwithstanding and with her testimony the inquiry began in earnest what is your name asked the coroner as this was something she could not help knowing she uttered the necessary words glibly though in a way that showed she resented his impertinence in asking her what he already knew where do you live and what do you do for a living rapidly followed she replied that she was a scrubwoman and cleaned people's houses and having said this she assumed a very dogged air which i thought strange enough to raise a question in the minds of those who watched her but no one else seemed to regard it as anything but the embarrassment of ignorance how long have you known the van burnham family the coroner went on two years sir come next christmas have you often done work for them i cleaned the house twice a year fall and spring why were you at the house two days ago to scrub the kitchen floors sir and put the pantries in order had you received notice to do so yes sir through mr franklin van burnham and was that the first day of your work there no sir i had been there all the day before you don't speak loud enough objected the coroner remember that everyone in this room wants to hear you she looked up and with a frightened air surveyed the crowd about her publicity evidently made her most uncomfortable and her voice sank rather than rose where did you get the key of the house and by what door did you enter i went in at the basement sir and i got the key at mr van burnham's agent in day street i had to go for it sometimes they send it to me but not this time and now relate your meeting with the policeman on wednesday morning in front of mr van burnham's house she tried to tell her story but she made awkward work of it and they had to ply her with questions to get at the smallest fact but finally she managed to repeat what we already knew how she went with the policeman into the house and how they stumbled upon the dead woman in the parlor further than this they did not question her and i amelia butterworth had to sit in silence and see her go back to her seat redder than before but with a strangely satisfied air that told me she had escaped more easily than she had expected and yet mr gryce had been warned that she knew more than appeared and by one in whom he seemed to have placed some confidence the doctor was called next his testimony was most important and contained a surprise for me and more than one surprise for the others after a short preliminary examination he was requested to state how long the woman had been dead when he was called to examine her more than twelve and less than eighteen hours was his quiet reply had the rigor mortis set in no but it began very soon after did you examine the wounds made by the falling shelves and the vases that tumbled with them i did will you describe them he did so and now there was a pause in the coroner's question which roused us all to its importance which of these many serious wounds was in your opinion the cause of her death the witness was accustomed to such scenes and was perfectly at home in them surveying the coroner with a respectful air he turned slowly towards the jury and answered in a slow and impressive manner 
I feel ready to declare, sirs, that none of them did. She was not killed by the falling of the cabinet upon her. Not killed by the falling shelves? Why not? Were they not sufficiently heavy, or did they not strike her in a vital place? They were heavy enough, and they struck her in a way to kill her if she had not already been dead when they fell upon her. As it was, they simply bruised a body from which life had already departed. As this was putting it very plainly, many people of the crowd who had not been acquainted with these facts previously showed their interest in a very unmistakable manner. But the coroner, ignoring these symptoms of growing excitement, hastened to say, This is a very serious statement you are making, doctor. If she did not die from the wounds inflicted by the objects which fell upon her, from what cause did she die? Can you say that her death was a natural one, and that the falling of the shelves was merely an unhappy accident following it? No, sir, her death was not natural. She was killed, but not by the falling cabinet. Killed, and not by the cabinet? How, then? Was there another wound upon her which you regard as mortal? Yes, sir. Suspecting that she had perished from other means than appeared, I made a most rigid examination of her body when I discovered under the hair in the nape of her neck a minute spot, which upon probing I found to be the end of a small thin point of steel. It had been thrust by a careful hand into the most vulnerable part of the body, and death must have ensued at once. This was too much for certain excitable persons present, and a momentary disturbance arose, which, however, was nothing to that in my own breast. So, so, it was her neck that had been pierced, and not her heart. Mr. Grice had allowed us to think it was the latter, but it was not this fact which stupefied me, but the skill and diabolical coolness of the man who had inflicted this death-thrust. After order had been restored, which I will say was very soon, the coroner, with an added gravity of tone, went on with his questions. Did you recognize this bit of steel as belonging to any instrument in the medical profession? No, it was of too untempered steel to have been manufactured for any thrusting or cutting purposes. It was of the commonest kind, and had broken short off in the wound. It was only the end that I found. Have you this end with you, the point, I mean, which you found embedded in the base of the dead woman's brain? I have, sir, and he handed it over to the jury. As they passed it along, the coroner remarked, Later we will show you the remaining portion of this instrument of death, which did not tend to allay the general excitement. Seeing this, the coroner humored the growing interest by pushing on his inquiries. Doctor, he asked, are you prepared to say how long a time elapsed between the infliction of this fatal wound and those which disfigured her? No, sir, not exactly, but some little time. Some little time when the murderer was in the house only ten minutes? All looked their surprise, and, as if the coroner had divined this feeling of general curiosity, he leaned forward and emphatically repeated, More than ten minutes? The doctor, who had every appearance of realizing the importance of his reply, did not hesitate. Evidently his mind was quite made up. 
Yes, more than ten minutes. This was the shock I received from his testimony. I remembered what the clock had revealed to me, but I did not move a muscle of my face. I was learning self-control under these repeated surprises. This is an unexpected statement, remarked the coroner. What reasons have you to urge in explanation of this? Very simple and very well-known ones, at least among the profession. There was too little blood seen for the wounds to have been inflicted before death or within a few minutes after it. Had the woman been living when they were made, or even had she been dead but a short time, the floor would have been deluged with the blood gushing from so many and such serious injuries. But the effusion was slight, so slight that I noticed it at once, and came to the conclusions mentioned before I found the mark of the stab that occasioned death. I see, I see, and was that the reason you called in two neighboring physicians to view the body before it was removed from the house? Yes, sir, in so important a matter I wished to have my judgment confirmed. And these physicians were Dr. Campbell of 110 East Street, and Dr. Jacobs of Lexington Avenue. Are these gentlemen here? inquired the coroner of an officer who stood near. They are, sir. Very well, we will now proceed to ask one or two more questions of this witness. You have told us that even had the woman been dead but a few minutes, when she received these contusions, the floor would have been more or less deluged by her blood. What reason have you for this statement? This, that in a few minutes, let us say ten, since that number has been used, the body has not had time to cool, nor have the blood vessels had sufficient opportunity to stiffen, so as to prevent the free effusion of blood. Is a body still warm at ten minutes after death? It is. So that your conclusions were logical deductions from well-known facts? Certainly, sir. A pause of some duration followed. When the coroner again proceeded, it was to remark, The case is complicated by these discoveries, but we must not allow ourselves to be daunted by them. Let me ask you, if you had found any marks upon this body which might aid in its identification. 1. A slight scar on the left ankle. What kind of a scar? Describe it. It was such as a burn might leave. In shape, it was long and narrow, and it ran up the limb from the ankle bone. Was it on the right foot? No, on the left. Did you call the attention of anyone to this mark during or after your examination? Yes, I showed it to Mr. Grice, the detective, and to my two coadjutors, and I spoke of it to Mr. Howard Van Burnham, son of the gentleman in whose house the body was found. It was the first time this young gentleman's name had been mentioned, and it made my blood run cold to see how many sidelong looks and expressive shrugs it caused in the motley assemblage. But I had no time for sentiment. The inquiry was growing too interesting. And why, asked the coroner, did you mention it to this young man in preference to others? Because Mr. Grice requested me to because the family, as well as the young man himself, had evinced some apprehension lest the deceased might prove to be his missing wife, 
and this seemed a likely way to settle the question. And did it, did he acknowledge it to be a mark he remembered to have seen on his wife? He said she had such a scar, but he would not acknowledge the deceased to be his wife. Did he see the scar? No, he would not look at it. Did you invite him to? I did, but he showed no curiosity. Doubtless thinking that silence would best emphasize this fact, which certainly was an astonishing one, the coroner waited a minute, but there was no silence. An indescribable murmur from a great many lips filled up the gap. I felt a movement of pity for this proud family, whose good name was thus threatened in the person of this young gentleman. Doctor, continued the coroner, as soon as the murmur had subsided, did you notice the color of the woman's hair? It was light brown. Did you sever a lock? Have you a sample of this hair here to show us? I have, sir. At Mr. Grice's suggestion, I cut off two small locks. One I gave him, and the other I brought here. Let me see it. The doctor passed it up, and in sight of everyone present, the coroner tied a string around it and attached a ticket to it. This is to prevent all mistake, explained this very methodical functionary, laying the lock aside on the table in front of him. Then he turned again to the witness. Doctor, we are indebted to you for your valuable testimony, and as you are a busy man, we will now excuse you. Let Dr. Jacobs be called. As this gentleman, as well as the witness who followed him, merely corroborated the statements of the other, and made it an accepted fact that the shelves had fallen upon the body of the girl some time after the first wound had been inflicted, I will not attempt to repeat their testimony. The question now agitating me was whether they would endeavor to fix the time at which the shelves fell by the evidence furnished by the clock. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Important Evidence Evidently not, for the next words I heard were, Miss Amelia Butterworth. I had not expected to be called so soon, and was somewhat flustered by the suddenness of the summons, for I am only human. But I rose with suitable composure, and passed to the place indicated by the coroner, in my usual straightforward manner, heightened only by a sense of the importance of my position, both as a witness and a woman whom the once famous Mr. Grice had taken more or less into his confidence. My appearance seemed to awaken an interest for which I was not prepared. I was just thinking how well my name had sounded, uttered in the sonorous tones of the coroner, and how grateful I ought to be for the courage I had displayed in substituting the genteel name of Amelia for the weak and sentimental one of Araminta, when I became conscious that the eyes directed towards me were filled with an expression not easy to understand. I should not like to call it admiration, and I will not call it amusement, and yet it seemed to be made up of both. While I was puzzling myself over it, the first question came. As my examination before the coroner only brought out the facts already related, I will not burden you with a detailed account of it. One portion alone may be of interest. I was being questioned in regard to the appearance of the couple I had seen entering the Van Burnham mansion, when the coroner asked if the young woman's step was light 
or if it betrayed hesitation. I replied, no hesitation. She moved quickly, almost gaily. And he? Was more moderate, but there was no signification in that. He may have been older. No theories, Miss Butterworth. It is facts we are after. Now do you know that he was older? No, sir. Did you get any idea as to his age? The impression he made was that of being a young man. And his height? was medium, and his figure was slight and elegant. He moved as a gentleman moves, and of this I can speak with great positiveness. Do you think you could identify him, Miss Butterworth, if you should see him? I hesitated, as I perceived that the whole swaying mass eagerly awaited my reply. I even turned my head because I saw others doing so, but I regretted this when I found that I, as well as others, was glancing towards the door beyond which the Van Burnhams were supposed to sit. To cover up the false move I had made, for I had no wish yet to center suspicions upon anybody, I turned my face quickly back to the crowd and declared in as emphatic a tone as I could command. I have thought I could do so if I saw him under the same circumstances as those in which my first impression was made but lately I have begun to doubt even that. I should never dare to trust to my memory in this regard. The coroner looked disappointed, and so did the people around me. It is a pity, remarked the coroner, that you did not see more plainly. And now, how did these persons gain an entrance into the house? I answered in the most succinct way possible. I told them how he had used a door-key in entering, of the length of time the man stayed inside, and of his appearance on going away. I also related how I came to call a policeman to investigate the matter the next day, and corroborated the statements of this official as to the appearance of the deceased at the time of discovery. And there my examination stopped. I was not asked any questions tending to bring out the cause of the suspicion I entertained against the scrubwoman, nor were the discoveries I had made in conjunction with Mr. Grice inquired into. It was just as well, perhaps, but I would never approve of a piece of work done for me in this slipshod fashion. A recess now followed. Why it was thought necessary I cannot imagine, unless the gentleman wished to smoke. Had they felt as much interest in this murder as I did, they would not have wanted bite or sup until the dreadful question was settled. There being a recess, I improved the opportunity by going into the restaurant nearby where one can get very good buns and coffee at a reasonable price. But I could have done without them. The next witness, to my astonishment, was Mr. Grice. As he stepped forward, heads were craned and many women rose in their seats to get a glimpse of the noted detective. I showed no curiosity myself, for by this time I knew his features well, but I did feel a great satisfaction in seeing him before the coroner. For now, thought I, we shall hear something worth our attention. But his examination, though interesting, was not complete. The coroner remembered his promise to show us the other end of the steel point, which had been broken off in the dead girl's brain. 
limited himself to such inquiries as brought out the discovery of the broken hat-pin in Mr. Van Burnham's parlor register. No mention was made by the witness of any assistance which he may have received in making this discovery, a fact which caused me to smile. Men are so jealous of any interference in their affairs. The end found in the register, and the end which the coroner's physician had drawn from the poor woman's head, were both handed to the jury. And it was interesting to note how each man made his little effort to fit the two ends together, and the looks they interchanged as they found themselves successful. Without doubt, and in the eyes of all, the instrument of death had been found, but what an instrument! The felt hat which had been discovered under the body was now produced, and the one hole made by a similar pin examined. Then Mr. Grice was asked if any other pin had been picked up from the floor of the room, and he replied, No, and the fact was established in the minds of all present that the young woman had been killed by a pin taken from her own hat. A subtle and cruel crime, the work of calculating intellect, was the coroner's comment as he allowed the detective to sit down, which expression of opinion I thought reprehensible as tending to prejudice the jury against the only person at present suspected. The inquiry now took a turn. The name of Miss Ferguson was called. Who was Miss Ferguson? It was a new name to most of us, and her face when she rose only added to the general curiosity. It was the plainest face imaginable, yet it was neither a bad nor an intelligent one. As I studied it and noted the nervous contraction that disfigured her lip, I could not but be sensible of my blessings. I am not handsome myself, though there have been persons who've called me so, but neither am I ugly, and in contrast to this woman, well, I will say nothing. I only know that after seeing her, I felt profoundly grateful to a kind providence. As for the poor woman herself, she knew she was no beauty, but she had become so accustomed to seeing the eyes of other people turn away from her face, that beyond the nervous twitching of which I have spoken, she showed no feeling. "'What is your full name, and where do you live?' asked the coroner. "'My name is Susan Ferguson, and I live in Haddam, Connecticut,' was her reply, uttered in such soft and beautiful tones that everyone was astonished. It was like a stream of limpid water flowing from a most unsightly-looking rock.' "'Excuse the metaphor. I do not often indulge. "'Do you keep boarders?' "'I do. A few, sir. Such as my house will accommodate. "'Whom have you had with you this summer?' "'I knew what her answer would be before she uttered it. "'So did a hundred others. "'But they showed their knowledge in different ways. "'I did not show mine at all.' "'I have had with me,' said she, "'a Mr. and Mrs. Van Burnham from New York.' Mr. Howard Van Burnham is his full name, if you wish me to be explicit. Anyone else? A Mr. Hull, also from New York, and a young couple from Hartford. My house accommodates no more. How long have the first-mentioned couple been with you? Three months. They came in June. Are they with you still? 
"'Virtually, sir, they have not moved their trunks, "'but neither of them is in Haddam at present. "'Mrs. Van Burnham came to New York last Monday morning, "'and in the afternoon her husband also left, "'presumably for New York. "'I have seen nothing of either of them since. "'It was on Tuesday night the murder occurred. "'Did either of them take a trunk?' "'No, sir.' "'A handbag?' "'Yes. Mrs. Van Burnham carried a bag, but it was a very small one. "'Large enough to hold a dress?' "'Oh, no, sir.' "'And Mr. Van Burnham?' "'He carried an umbrella. I saw nothing else.' "'Why did they not leave together? Did you hear anyone say?' "'Yes, I heard them say Mrs. Van Burnham came against her husband's wishes. "'He did not want her to leave Haddam, but she would.' and he was none too pleased at it. Indeed, they had words about it, and as both our rooms overlooked the same veranda, I could not help hearing some of their talk. Will you tell us what you heard? It does not seem right, thus this honest woman spoke, but if it's the law, I must not go against it. I heard him say these words. I have changed my mind, Louise, the more I think of it, the more disinclined I am to have you meddle in the matter. Besides, it will do no good. You will only add to the prejudice against you, and our life will become more unbearable than it is now. Of what were they speaking? I do not know. And what did she reply? Oh, she uttered a torrent of words that had less sense in them than feeling. She wanted to go. She would go. She had not changed her mind and considered that her impulses were as well worth following as his cool judgment. She was not happy, and never had been happy, and meant there should be a change, even if it were for the worse. But she did not believe it would be for the worse. Was she not pretty? Was she not very pretty when in distress and looking up thus? And I heard her fall on her knees, a movement which called out a grunt from her husband, but whether this was of an expression of approval or disapproval, I cannot say. A silence followed, during which I caught the sound of his steady tramping up and down the room. Then she spoke again in a petulant way. It may seem foolish to you, she cried, knowing me as you do, and being used to seeing me in all my moods, but to him it will be a surprise, and I will so manage it that it will affect all we want, and more, too, perhaps. I, I have a genius for some things, Howard, and my better angel tells me I shall succeed. And what did he reply to that? That the name of her better angel was vanity, that his father would see through her blandishments, that he forbade her to prosecute her schemes, and much more to the same effect, to all of which she answered by a vigorous stamp of her foot, and the declaration that she was going to do what she thought best, in spite of all opposition, that it was a lover and not a tyrant that she had married, and that if he did not know what was good for himself, she did, and that when he received an intimation from his father that the breach in the family was closed, then he would acknowledge that if she had no fortune and no connections, she had at least a plentiful supply of wit." upon which he remarked, a poor qualification when it verges upon folly, which seemed to close the conversation, for I heard no more till the sound of her skirts rustling past my door 
assured me she had carried her point and was leaving the house. This was not done without great discomfiture to her husband, if one may judge from the few brief but emphatic words that escaped him before he closed his own door and followed her down the hall. Do you remember those words? They were swear words, sir. I am sorry to say it, but he certainly cursed her and his own folly. Yet I always thought he loved her. Did you see her after she passed your door? Yes, sir, on the walk outside. Was she then on the way to the train? Yes, sir. Carrying the bag of which you have spoken? Yes, sir. Another proof of the state of feeling between them, for he was very considerate in his treatment of ladies, and I never saw him do anything ungallant before. You say you watched her as she went down the walk? Yes, sir. It is human nature, sir. I have no other excuse to offer. It was an apology I myself might have made. I conceived a liking for this homely, matter-of-fact woman. Did you note her dress? Yes, sir. That is human nature also, or rather, woman's nature. Particularly, madam, so that you can describe it to the jury before you? I think so. Will you then be good enough to tell us what sort of a dress Mrs. Van Burnham wore when she left your house for the city? It was black and white plaid silk, very rich. Why, what did this mean? We had all expected a very different description. It was made fashionably, and the sleeves, well, it's impossible to describe the sleeves. She wore no wrap, which seemed foolish to me, for we have had very sudden changes sometimes in September. A plaid dress, and did you notice her hat? Oh, I have seen the hat often. It was of every conceivable color. It would have been called bad taste at one time, but nowadays... The pause was significant. More than one man in the room chuckled, but the women kept a discreet silence. Would you know that hat if you saw it? I should think I would. The emphasis was that of a countrywoman, and amused some people notwithstanding the melodious tones in which it was uttered. But it did not amuse me. My thoughts had flown to the hat which Mr. Grice had found in the third room of Mr. Van Burnham's house, and which was of every color of the rainbow. The coroner asked two other questions, one in regards to the gloves worn by Mrs. Van Burnham, and the other in regard to her shoes. To the first Miss Ferguson replied that she did not notice her gloves, and to the other that Mrs. Van Burnham was very fashionable, and as pointed shoes were in fashion, in cities at least, she probably wore pointed shoes. The discovery that Mrs. Van Burnham had been differently dressed on that day from the young woman found dead in the Van Burnham parlors had acted as a shock upon most of the spectators. They were just beginning to recover from it when Miss Ferguson sat down. The coroner was the only one who had not seemed at a loss. Why, we were soon destined to know. End of chapter 10